Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A quick listener note. This podcast contains adult language and descriptions of violence. Well, I don't talk to reporters as a, you know, I mean, I've never had anyone approach me or talk to me about it. So, I mean, after all these years, people don't know where people are. Yeah. And, you know, they're not interested. What? Why are they interested in this case? I mean, he's clearly guilty. So nobody's looking for me to interview me. I haven't given any interviews to anybody about anything ever. It was just before Christmas 2019 when I got an unexpected tweet from Edna Franklin's daughter, Linda McLean. This was just a few days after we'd been to death row to meet Charles Raby. And she'd been notified that he had a media visit. Before long, I found myself on the phone with Linda, making plans to meet up the next time Jordan and I were in Houston. This isn't how things usually go. Reaching out to victims' families is a critical part of reporting stories like these. But it's not necessarily the first thing we do. These are delicate matters. Sometimes the victim's family wants to talk. But a lot of times, they don't. And that's understandable. You're asking people to revisit some of the most painful and tragic experiences they've had. Just bringing it up can be enough to re-traumatize them. This is especially tricky when we're questioning a conviction. So it's not like we weren't going to contact Linda. What we didn't expect was that she'd be the one to reach out to us. And that she'd be so willing to talk. And keep talking. We've been talking with her on and off for more than two years now. And not just about Charles's case. We've learned a lot about her. But we started with her Twitter feed. In her profile picture, she's smiling with the sun on her face. She has long hair and bangs. She's wearing sunglasses in the shape of shamrocks, along with green Mardi Gras beads. It's clearly St. Patrick's Day, and she's at some kind of outdoor event at a strip mall. Most of Linda's tweets were directed at other accounts, expressing her strong opinions about a range of topics, she hates car commercials. She loves Arby's chicken salad sandwiches. A fan of Kroger, a foe of Walmart. And then there's true crime. She watches a lot of it. Her last tweets before she contacted us praised the show Homicide Hunter, whose latest season was coming to an end. But she also had a lot of complaints. Her biggest beef was that the shows on Investigation Discovery recycled the same stories over and over. She knew these murder cases inside and out. And she wondered why none of these shows looked for new stories to tell. Like her mom's. From The Intercept, I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. Welcome back to Murderville, Texas. Episode 6. Linda. 
As much as Linda was open to talking, she often reminded us that she was skeptical about what we were doing. She wanted to make sure that we didn't misrepresent her. And from the start, she was clear that she didn't exactly align with the Intercept's progressive values, at least as she perceived them. In our second phone call, I asked if she thought her son, Lee Rose, might also be willing to meet with us. Lee had lived with his grandmother and found her body the night she was murdered. Have you talked to your son at all about the possibility of, of, of talking? Yeah, I talked to the one son who said he wouldn't mind giving an interview. And then I talked to another son who said to be leery of interviews because of the way people misconstrue things. Mm. And I do know that you're a Democratic magazine. <laughs> and uh, I am not a Democratic, and I, they're in completely insane. Those people need to be just erased off the planet of the earth. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. I don't know what your goal is. I think that your goal is against the death penalty. And that's what your magazine is about. Not innocence or guilt. Am I right or wrong? She asked us this a lot almost every time we talked. And we talked about this last time, too. I mean, no, I think you're right that, you know, Jordan and I are both against the death penalty. We're pretty clear on that. Um, You know, but we also write stories and look into individual cases where there's a claim about the possibility of a wrongful conviction where people claim to be innocent. I I completely understand why your son would be concerned and and why you would feel, you know, some trepidation. But that's something we work through with with everyone we talk to for all our stories. And we're not interested in in manipulating anyone or misrepresenting the Mm -hmm. fact. That's just not how we roll. That's not what we're about. So, so you know, yeah. um, and I appreciate you being clear on that. I mean, oh, are you still rolling? I am. Cool. In February 2020, we met Linda for the first time. So maybe even numbers. Upstairs, but... At Lee's apartment in Conroe, Texas, just north of Houston. Hi. Hi. Are you Linda? Linda? Yes. Hi. Hi. Sorry, Liliana. Hi, Sorry Liliana. to show up with all this stuff. Jordan. Just, you know. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hi. Hello, Hi. how you doing? Nice Lee. Lee? Lee? Jordan. Jordan. Nice to meet That's you. Nice to meet name. you. All right, there you go. Good choices. <laughs> Lee lives with his wife, Cindy, and they seem to have built a happy and cozy home. The living room was decorated in soft pastels with family photos and a bunch of those wooden wall signs that have inspiring words or Bible quotes in loopy cursive. Grateful, thankful, blessed, one of them read. Lee is tall. He wore glasses and a pink checkered shirt. He sat on the couch next to his mom, who was wearing a bright yellow shirt. Her toenails were painted pink. They were both friendly, but understandably, also a bit guarded. We told them that we wanted to know more about Franklin. We don't know much about her as a person before all this happened, and we just really want to learn a little bit more about who she was before all of this. And so we definitely want to talk about the case. We know who she was after it. Well, we want to, yeah. She was nobody. She was dead. Somebody that nobody ever even asks about. We want to talk so to her. After, the, after she, it happened, she's nobody. Was she from Houston? Is oh, your family from Houston originally? or? Yeah, she was born in Houston. She lived in the Heights when she was a little girl. I mean, she'd do anything for anybody. She would because she used to always bail my boyfriends out of jail. <laughs> if they'd get drunk, she was always bailing them out of jail. You know, she treated all our friends like her own grandsons. 
You know, I mean... Well, she treated all my friends like her own sons. Franklin worked at First City Bank for 25 years. She'd been retired two years when she was murdered. She had the same job for ever since I was eight years old. Seven, maybe. Six or seven, seven, eight. I don't remember how old we were when she went to work for the bank. She was a proof operator. It's the person that runs the checks. And um, they added all it up with a calculator at the machine. Quite sure they don't do that now. She told me once, don't ever give it to the United Way. You should see the check that they um, they write for themselves to give their parties at the end of their campaigns. She said, you should see this check. It's ridiculous. I said, yeah, you're probably right. I never gave it to the United Way again. People shouldn't be doing that. You're just making somebody get, you know, get some CEO or Cadillac or a big house, just like, what's his name, Joel Osteen? Oh, God, don't get me started on him. Can't talk about Joel Osteen or I'll go bananas. We're not going to get started on him. We're trying to talk about Buster and how he deserves to be on death row. This was classic Linda. Conversations swinging wildly in different directions. She told us that her parents were married for more than a decade before they had kids. She wasn't like your average uh, mother. She was always older. And she was feisty. I mean, she wouldn't take crap off anybody. And so that's one thing about her. She could be both ways. Yeah, so. She could let you in or she could kick you out. Just depended on what you were doing. Linda said her father was an alcoholic and her mother put up with a lot. But also, by her own telling, Linda and her sister were a bit wild. Linda was impressed by how her mother dealt with it all. So then my sister and I started acting out. So (laughs) my mother, I don't know what she was thinking or why she, you know, how she could not have thought, you know, I'm going to go crazy between these two girls. Um, And I mean, she put up with a lot of stuff. She put up with all of our boyfriends and crazy shenanigans, sneaking out of the house and all kinds of stuff. And she, um, she never, you know, never lost it as far as I know. She never did. I'd have strangled my daughter if she'd been acting like me. I have a daughter that's 25, acts nothing like me. I'm like, wow, this is what I'm supposed to have acted like. Like, you know, like a quiet person, but no. So she did. She put up with a lot of stuff from my sister and from me. I mean, we would get in arguments like normal teenage mothers and stuff do, and it was no big deal. Uh, She bailed the guys out of jail if they got in jail or um, went to the hospital if they got stabbed. I mean, it was pretty rough back then. (laughs) Hearing this helped put into context why Lee spent so much time at Franklin's house. So when did you start staying? uh At my grandma's? Oh, I stayed there. You stayed there all, all the time. Yeah, I was. I mean, I went to elementary party. school in the same neighborhood. But Linda didn't live far from Franklin, just a few blocks away. When she was growing up, the neighborhood felt pretty safe. But she and Lee agreed that things changed in the 80s. Now, that wasn't just their neighborhood. In that era, Houston was dealing with a staggering number of homicides. What do you, um, you remember about the last time you saw your grandmother? 
Uh, well, uh, the last time I saw my grandmother, she was, I left the house to go with a friend of mine and I left the door unlocked because I did not have a key to the door and I told her I'd be back in a little while. And that was the last time. Told her I loved her and left. And then came home about 10 o'clock, and that's when uh, me and my cousin discovered her. And she was dead. But, uh, yeah, it just, uh, uh, I don't know. It was just odd. I mean, it was it was just I was in shock. I don't I don't know how to describe it. It was just hard to take in. I just walked in and the, the lights were off and she was in the living room and my cousin was already there and you know it was just it's crazy. And the worst thing the Probably the worst thing that night, I had to call my mom and tell her. Linda had spoken to her mother just a few hours earlier. They were both at home watching different TV shows. Linda was watching A Current Affair, the half-hour news magazine first hosted by Maury Povich. A current affair. Our stories are original. Maury Povich. We have no rules. Maury Povich was coming on about the lady who had the asthma attack after she got out of the prison in Mexico and she died. And my mother was going to watch The Wheel of Fortune. I don't know if I asked her if she wanted me to come over there or I think she said Lee was going to come back and make something to eat. I don't remember that part. But I told her I would call her back after the Mari Povich show was over, and um, I didn't call her back. I stayed at my house and painted my toenails, and I didn't call her back, and I didn't go over there. And the next thing I knew, it was 10 o'clock, and they were calling me, telling me that she'd been hurt. So, um... That was the last I talked to her. I hadn't seen her for two weeks before then. It had been two weeks since I had been over there. I don't know why. just didn't go over there. The hours and days after Franklin was murdered were a blur. Lee remembers that he and his cousin, Eric Benj, had to go to the police station and were there all night giving statements. Linda doesn't remember much of what happened before the funeral. The funeral was on October 19, 1992, the same day Charles Raby was arrested. There was no eulogies or anything like that at her funeral. Um, it was just a graveside service. And um, I don't remember a whole lot of the in-between parts, except for picked out a gown for her to wear and it was blue she hated that and all these years later I think every once in a while 
Why'd I bury her in a blue gown? I mean, I should have got a purple gown or a lavender gown. I'm like, why did I do that? Because I know she's like, why'd she put me in this blue gown? Anyway, I don't even know why I did that. I have no idea. I don't even know what I was doing. But um, we did get that done, which was good. I remember the funeral and people going that I hadn't seen for years came which I thought was miraculous. Like, holy cow. Throughout our time with Linda and Lee, the conversation frequently turned back to Charles, or Buster, as everyone called him, and why they thought he was guilty. It was mostly because they remember him as violent and an asshole, who'd been run off by Franklin a few weeks before her death. That's why Lee and his cousin gave Charles's name to the police. And the only person I could think of was Buster. Why did he come to mind so readily? Because he's the uh, he's the one that uh, she cussed out a week, two weeks before, and we hadn't I hadn't seen him in that two week period. And uh, he's the only one that's got a mind to do something like that. The other person that. Uh that Eric mentioned that maybe you mentioned was the guy that had been painting the house. Oh, Edward. 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 Yeah. I don't know. Edward. Edward was nothing like that. Edward was totally opposite from what Buster is. I mean, totally opposite. I don't, Edward doesn't have a mean spot in his body. I mean, back then he didn't. I don't know how he is now. I haven't seen him in 20 something years, but back then he was, he was, I'd never seen him get mean with nobody. I mean, I don't know. I've seen Buster plenty of times get, pull a knife out. I mean, quick to pull a knife out. He always had a knife on him. And, uh, but I had never seen, I mean, my grandmother liked Edward. She didn't care too much for Buster. This generally positive impression of Edward Bangs wasn't enough for Lee and Eric to completely dismiss him as a suspect. After all, they'd given his name to the Houston Police Department, too, because he'd been around Franklin's house, painting the outside. It was during this visit that we told Linda and Lee about the blood evidence found back in 1992, that it didn't match Charles and that the crime lab analyst had lied about it, saying it was inconclusive. There was also the unknown male DNA, developed from blood taken from under Franklin's fingernails, which also didn't match Charles. They wanted to know why no one had tested to see if the evidence matched Bangs. So they've never DNA tested anyone else? Well, they no. Didn't DNA test Edward. Who would be? Who? Edward. Banks. Yes. They didn't DNA test him? Why wouldn't they have DNA tested him then? I know this is like a lot to take in, but but you're, yeah. you, it, it strikes me that your your mind went to Edward. Like, why did you, you know, why did you... have been painting the house. He was the only other male person that had been around there. Yeah. I mean, I had never, like I said, I had never seen him get mean. I mean, mean there's only so many people you can choose from. Franklin's murder was deeply traumatic for Linda and her family. 
everyone seems to have dealt with it in their own way. One of Linda's sons became a forensic pathologist. Lee said it was because his brother wanted to better understand death. Before Franklin was killed, Lee and his cousin, Eric Benj, both partied pretty hard. But after the murder, things got serious. Eric's substance abuse was compounded by the fact that he continued to live in his grandmother's house on Westford Street. What was the impact? You know, how did it impact your family? Well, I turned to drugs and uh, alcohol, and uh, my cousin turned to drugs and alcohol for a numerous of years. You know, I think if he would have if he'd have left the house, if he wouldn't have stayed there all these years, if he would have moved out and maybe rented it out to somebody, he might be still here. But every year around October, he would he would drink and. He, ate, he was addicted to pain pills, and he would take pills and drink and just live in, you know, misery from what happened. And, uh, you know, and uh, he just couldn't handle it. When Eric's mom died in 2012, it was another blow. He just spiraled out of control. And then when she passed away, it was like, man, it just hit him hard. That's probably what did it. In October of that same year, within days of the anniversary of Franklin's murder, Eric was killed on Interstate 10. He'd taken a bunch of pills and crashed into an 18-wheeler. The whole thing really shook Lee up. That was a wake-up for me. I was eating pills, too. And I, that, that woke me up on that time. I stopped eating pills, and, but I was still drinking and stuff. And, but then I quit drinking. I started going to church. I quit drinking. So. Been going to church ever since. It was obvious that Lee had worked hard to overcome quite a lot of trauma. He'd really turned his life around. Part of that was his faith. But he also told us that part of it was forgiving Charles. I forgave Buster, you know. You know, if, I mean, I don't know. He says he didn't do it. I mean, if he didn't do it, he shouldn't have confessed to it. That's all I'm saying. But I, I forgive him for doing it. I mean, that's the only way I can move forward if I forgive him. I don't, rem I don't forget it, but I forgive him. And, you know, I don't want nothing to do with him. When did you decide that you were ready to forgive Buster? Uh, when I started going to church. Got to move forward. That's probably what I'd write him if I wrote him a letter. Well, you know, that's part of it. Tell him that I forgive him. But, uh, you know, and then if you didn't do it, you should have never said you did it. I mean, that is a horrible crime to admit to. I just, I don't know. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As we reflected on our visit, a couple things were clear. Neither Linda nor Lee had found any closure around Franklin's murder. The closure prosecutors often promise that families will feel after a conviction. And while Lee had found some measure of peace through forgiveness, Linda was just not in the same place. I don't think anything can give people closure. You know, the only way I would think you could get closure is if someone was missing and you found them. Either they were dead or they were alive. That, to me, you might be able to get closure. But, you know, it never gets any better. It doesn't really change. Every year, Linda pulls out the last birthday card she ever got from her mom. And she thinks about how old her mother would have been that same year. But I can say that on November 27th, it would have been her 100th birthday. So I can finally say that I'm absolutely for certain she would not be here any longer. So we can put that part to rest. We followed up with Linda a few days later. We wanted to see how she was doing. She told us she was surprised by how emotional Lee had gotten during our visit. I've never seen Lee like that. I was like, oh my God, please don't start crying me. And he's a very emotional person. He cries about silly things. <sighs> He's like a big baby. He's not a big baby. He's always been the one that cried all the time for nothing. Yeah, I felt so bad. But what can you do? If I would have grabbed him and hugged him, we both probably would have started crying, and that wouldn't have worked. That's what happens. You know, to people, if they're upset, somebody grabs you and hugs you, it makes it worse. It's like, don't say anything. (laughs) You know what I mean? If you say something to somebody, it makes it, 50 times worse. Don't say anything. You know, don't say, I'm sorry that happened or anything. And whatever you do, don't say, I'm sorry I that I'm sorry to hear that. That makes me so mad when people say, I'm sorry to hear that. Do you know what that sounds like? It sounds like they're sorry to hear it. Well, I'm sorry I told you that. As for talking with us again, Linda was skeptical. She didn't want to be seen as advocating for Charles. I can't fight for him. No, I don't want him out of prison. <laughs> but she also clearly wanted to talk and was, frankly, more accommodating than most people are. Hello? Hi, Linda. Can you hear me? Well, I can't hear you, yes, but can you hear me? <laughs> I, can't, I think so. It sounds okay. I got, <laughs> like, a, f- a fraction of a bar. <laughs> Linda told me she was staying at her beach house and got terrible service everywhere except her bathroom. So we set up a time to talk when she would be waiting for the call in her bathroom. I 
I'm in the bathroom. It's fine. It's kind of a big bathroom. I reassured her that we weren't going to present her as advocating for Charles. Like I say, like, we're not trying to convince you to do any one thing or think any one thing, but we certainly think you've got, you've got a story to tell that we think is really important. You better hurry because I'm 66 now and I may be dead any minute. Linda has had a cinematic life full of wild spontaneity, but also tragic losses. She's lost her mother, her sister, her nephew, and her husband in unexpected or violent ways. She asked if I'd ever seen the movie Steel Magnolias. You don't remember that line, Steel Magnolias? Truvy says it. Truvy's telling Annelle. I have to tell you, when it comes to suffering, she is right up there with Elizabeth Taylor. There's another piece of her story that we couldn't possibly have anticipated. One that has forced her to grapple more directly with the death penalty than most people do. It comes into play every time we talk about her mother's murder and Charles's conviction. Charles isn't the only person she's known on Texas death row. In the early 2000s, Linda moved from Houston to the Fort Worth suburbs. She'd been living up there about a year when she got a call from a friend back home. My friend called me, and she's like, you'll never guess who they arrested for being a serial killer. And I'm like, who, who is it? Some breaking news. A 90-day reprieve for one of Houston's most notorious criminals, the so-called tourniquet killer. Anthony Allen Shore confessed to the murders of at least three girls and one woman between 1986 and 1995. He was scheduled Anthony Shore was an infamous Houston serial killer who murdered four people over the course of a decade. He confessed to raping two of them. His youngest victim was nine. He was known as the tourniquet killer because of the homemade garrots he used to strangle his victims. He managed to go undetected for years, for a couple reasons. For starters, he was something of a charmer. Linda met him because they both worked for Southwestern Bell Telephone Company. Shore hung phone lines. He had the nickname Telephone Tony. We went, you know, hung, hung around together a lot. We you know, went to lunch all the time. I went out on a boat. And he was always, well, everybody else said they thought it was strange. But I never really saw it, except he'd make strange little remarks about, you know, the way I looked or something. But that didn't bother me. I didn't care. But behind closed doors, he was a tyrant. He terrorized his two daughters in truly sadistic ways and ultimately pleaded guilty to molesting them. In return, he had to pay a fine and was sentenced to eight years probation. As part of that deal, he also had to provide the cops with a DNA sample. And yet, because of the dysfunction in the Houston Police Crime Lab, the cops still didn't connect him to the string of unsolved murders. Police had found DNA on his second victim, who Shore raped and murdered in 1992. But the lab never tested the sample. In an in-depth story about Shore published in 2004, the Houston press repeatedly asked why the evidence had never been tested. But police wouldn't say. That the lab never tested the evidence wasn't exactly surprising. 
according to the Bromwich Reports, which revealed the findings of the independent investigation into the HPD crime lab, this was a common problem. The lab would get evidence sufficient for DNA testing and then just never do it. After the HPD lab's DNA section was shuttered, evidence from that 1992 case was finally tested by a different lab. It matched Shore. He was convicted and sentenced to death in 2004. Like many others, Linda was shocked to hear the truth about Shore. Years later, when he was facing an execution date, she wrote him a letter asking if he'd ever considered killing her. No, he wrote in return. Before he was executed in 2018, Linda went to Huntsville to visit him. She told us about this when we went up to her home outside Fort Worth, just days before the country went into pandemic lockdown. Yeah. Oh, I like your sign. There's always room for one more dog. Oh, yeah. How are you? There will never be another dog. Oh. Linda's chihuahua sat with us on the couch in her living room. There was a collection of snow globes and seashells, a cabinet full of dolls, and family photos everywhere. There was a picture of her daughter on the table in a frame decorated with ducklings and a girl in a raincoat that said, you're my shelter from the storm. You know, there wasn't any fanfare when Tony got executed. There was hardly anything, nothing. But you know what? I guess most of the populace knew that what he had done. I don't know. We asked Linda how it felt to visit Shore right before his scheduled execution. I was conflicted because, you know, I mean, it was stupid because I know what he did. And I shouldn't have went to see him. If I hadn't gone to see him, it probably would have been okay. You know, I could still envision the monster Tony. But when I went to see him, he's joking and laughing, carrying on. And I'm like, He's like six hours from being executed, and he's laughing and joking at me, and uh, he's, he's so weird. He's like, well, look, if I don't get executed this time, will you come back and marry me? I'm like, sure, why not, Tony? What the hell? I've always wanted some notoriety. <laughs> My kids would really have a fit. Did I'll, you really say yes? <laughs> I said, sure, I'll come back and marry you. <laughs> At that point, did you think he was going to be executed? Yes. Linda talks about Shore a lot. She's pretty matter-of-fact about it, even though the whole situation was extremely traumatic for her. The thing that seems to bother her the most is that she never saw him as a monster. She's never been able to reconcile the friend she knew with the horrifying things he'd done. Who did I see? I saw Tony. I didn't see Anthony Allen Shore, the monster. And it made me so mad. I'm like, why can't you just act like a monster? Um, he didn't act like a monster. I can still hear him talking. He's laughing and joking and kidding around. I can still hear him joking and laughing on the day of his execution. He, um, it's like nothing's going to happen. It's like any other day. Like, i see you tomorrow. It was just absolutely the strangest thing. 
on the one hand, he did these, you know, horrible things. On the other hand, um, you knew him as a human being. I mean, how do you feel about the sort of, about his execution in terms of, you know, do you think that that's justice? You know, it's hard to say. The reason is, of course, because of Buster. I'm assuming that possibly if, you know, it's conflicting, but there's, it's like Tony was two different people, but Buster's only one mean person. So there you go. Okay. Does this two different people person deserve to live? If he did live, he should not have ever been able to get out of prison and live. Never. Because Tony was a dangerous person. I mean, he was a total maniac. This is something she puzzles over a lot. She doesn't know how to make sense of both Shore and Charles in the context of her life. She wonders what she would see if she went to visit Charles. She thinks he'd just be mean. But if he wasn't, she's not sure she'd like that either. You know, I kind of felt like going to see him with the rule that we don't talk about her. And I just want to see what he's like when I talk to him. You know? What is he like now? What is he going to do? Is he going to start having a fit? Is he going to start screaming and hollering? Is he going to be sitting there nice and just talking to me about the weather? I just want to see how he acts. Will he act like a normal person? Because, I mean... That's why he got the death penalty, because he can't be around people. But that's probably what I would talk about. Like, you know, how is it in there? And maybe I think of something. Maybe just tell him how Lee's doing or ask him how he's doing. See if he can go without saying anything or, or just how he acts. Like with the, my interaction with Tony. No, was it like the murder in Anthony Allen Shore? Like, where's the monster? Come on. I never saw that guy, but I did see the monster in Buster. So there you go. And I mean, many people saw the monster in Buster. So which is better? To have the monster all the time? So you can be afraid? Or the one like Tony? I don't know. I think the all-the-time monster where you can be afraid. A few months later, Linda brought up the idea of talking to Charles again. I'd like to hear what he has to say. I'd like to hear the manner of tone he uses. Because he's not a nice person. I don't care what he says to you guys. He is not a nice person. He is not a nice person. He can fool you just like Tony Shore. Tony Shore could fool the damn pants off of somebody. And if he didn't fool the pants off of you, he would rip them off of you and kill you. So, I don't know what kind of charmer he's turned into because he's never been a charmer to me. Not like Tony Shaw was, but 
I don't know what he got on you two or why you think he's so sweet or whatever you think he is. He's a monster. He's not sweet. There's nothing sweet about him. This is another of her concerns, that somehow Charles has done to us what Shore did to her, that we don't see Charles for who she believes he is. There's also something else that's been bothering her, what we told her about the serology work from 1992 that the state hid. That, combined with the more recent DNA results, troubles her. She understands the significance of this kind of evidence. She's watched enough true crime, including shows about wrongful convictions. But she really doesn't know what to do with this information. This is another way in which wrongful convictions are so harmful. To the people who believed that their loved one's murder had been solved. The crime and trial are traumatic enough. But when years or decades later, people are confronted with evidence suggesting the state got it wrong, that's a whole other nightmare. I don't know. I think it's just more confusing. It's just so confusing. I hate being confused about things. And I don't understand it. I think they made a mistake. Um, Even though they say they didn't make a mistake, well, why are they going to say they did make a mistake? But... I don't understand the whole thing. I don't understand why, where it came from. It does drive me crazy. Don't think it doesn't drive me crazy because it does. Don't think I think he's innocent because I don't. He is not innocent. If it wasn't for his confession, um, he might not have gotten convicted. If it wasn't for him telling that what he did that day and what he did that night and what he did the next day, he might not have been convicted. He should have never said anything. He should have just kept his mouth shut. And we would still be wondering who killed my mother. So, why why did he do that? We continued to talk to Linda as the pandemic rolled on. She'd taken to painting recreating Van Gogh's Starry Night, or images of Tom and Jerry, her beach house, and a pelican. She'd also taken to Twitter to criticize Domino's Pizza for not taking sufficient pandemic precautions. Her daughter worked there, and she worried. After watching The Innocence Files on Netflix, she told us she'd become skeptical of the death penalty. Not that she ever expressed real support for it, From day one, she told us over and over that she really didn't care if Charles was ever executed. I just don't feel like they're ever going to execute him because of that DNA. But sometimes, I don't think they care. I'm sure that there have been innocent people executed. And that is really horrible, but I don't think that um, that's just going to be one of them if they ever do decide to execute him. I don't think he'll be one of them, so I'm not too worried about that. Linda said she knows innocent people have probably been executed. She doesn't think Charles will be one of them. In part, it comes back to the confession. So, so why would you confess after four hours 
because they have a girl that you barely know and her baby in the other room. She's talking about Mary Alice Gomez, Charles's girlfriend. I would have been like, all right, do what you got to do. I didn't do it. One of the reasons Linda and Lee don't believe that Charles was coerced into confessing is that, as they understand it, Charles had only known Mary Alice for a brief period of time before the murder. And they knew Charles's ex-girlfriend, Carrie Ann Wright, who he'd treated like shit. Why would he be different with anyone else? And why would he lie for a woman he barely knew? As it turns out, this premise was incorrect. It's not their fault they thought that. Anyone watching Charles's trial would have come away with that impression, too. But as with so many aspects of this case, there's a lot more to the story. Next time on Murderville, Texas, Mary Alice. Lindell helped me to get my stuff and went and got in his car and and I said, I said, when is Charles coming home? You know. And uh, he said, ma'am, he goes, he goes, he signed a confession. And I said, what? Murderville, Texas is a production of The Intercept and First Look Media. Andrea Jones is our story editor. Julia Scott is senior producer. Truk Wynn is our podcast fellow. Laura Flynn is supervising producer. Fact-checking by Miri Jesuthasen. Special thanks to Jack Desidoro and Holly Demuth for additional production assistance. Our show was mixed by Rick Kwan with original music by Zach Young. Legal review by David Brelo. Executive producers are Roger Hodge and Christy Grussman. For The Intercept, Betsy Reed is the editor-in-chief. I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. You can read show transcripts and see photos at theintercept.com slash murderville. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Liliana Segura and at chronic underscore Jordan. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash donate. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>